Good morning and happy Mama's Day. There are, uh, I'm hoping there's a lot of family who are visiting their mamas and getting some good time with them. That's exciting. And uh, yeah, happy Mama's Day to my wife too. I'm excited for this day and being able to celebrate it and honor the most amazing women in our lives. So for those of you who have had a chance to be with us over the course of the past month or so, you know that we're in the midst of going through the book of Ephesians. And the book of Ephesians is a prison epistle. And what that means is it's a letter written by the Apostle Paul while he was imprisoned. And as we've been going through the lessons and the truths that Paul wants to insert in our lives, uh, we've been wanting to do this series a bit differently and and be able to teach that from a broad array of perspectives. And so what you've experienced over the course of the past month, for those of you who have been with us, is you've heard a different pastor uh, preach on a different chapter each week. Ironically, until this week, Um, And in each case, having that different perspective, having that different gift, having that different focus has been hopefully shaping how you think and understand uh, the words that are shared by Paul under the inspiration of God. And I want to continue that trend this morning by going through the book of Ephesians chapter 5. So growing up, I was not a Christian, but I was a really good kid. I was obedient. Uh, Whatever my parents told me to do, for the most part, I did. I was shy, a bit quiet, and pretty moldable. So, uh, and my mom had a very strong personality, so I just did whatever my mom told me to do. I got good grades. I didn't get into trouble at school. Uh, In fact, Growing up, I never gave my parents any reason at all to be concerned about me except for the fact that I was a real mess, and so outside of that small issue, until I reached the seventh grade. When I reached seventh grade, I had an incident that happened that was so out of character for me that my parents were a bit surprised. So I I biked to school back then. This was middle school. And they didn't have bike racks at the time that could accommodate that many bikes. And so there was just this long chain fence that led up to the school. And what we would do is we would take our bikes, we'd park it and lock it up along that fence. And so I was doing this one day and walking into school when I ran into some of my friends on the way to, to the school building itself. And they stopped me. And I was like, hey, what's up? And they're like, this is Kelsey's bike. Kelsey was another student in our class, and he was a bit of a bully. He never treated anyone nice. He didn't have a lot of friends, and he was pretty mean to me a few times as well. And so my friends were like, hey, we want to do something to his bike. We're going to let the air out of his tires. And I was thrilled. I'd like, I'd never done anything like this before, and they were inviting me to do it. And so this is what getting into trouble was like in the 1980s. You let air out of a bike. So I jumped in, I did. It was the first time I'd done anything like that. You push that little nozzle, and it goes, and I just did it for a little bit because I was nervous. I was afraid I was going to get caught, and so I just let a little bit of air out of the tires, and we walked in, and I felt like this great rebel. Well, the next day, um, I was at recess when one of my favorite teachers came and pulled me aside and said, Frank, there's this group of kids who say that yesterday you were part of letting air out of Kelsey's tire, and... Do you know anything about that? 
And I said, no, I don't know anything about that. And I'll never forget the look of relief on her face. And, and she said to me, I knew that wasn't true. And I'm so glad that you weren't a part of that. Come with me. I'm like, go where? And she's like, well, we have to confront the boys who are accusing you because you're innocent and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to stand up for you. So we went and just about before we got to the classroom, I broke down. I confessed. I'm like, I'm sorry. I actually did do it. I just let a little bit out. But I, and the look of disappointment on her face is, is memorable. So I ended up sitting in her classroom for the rest of that period, and I had to write this long, extended apology to Kelsey Tyson. That was my prison epistle, right? That, this idea that with this book of Ephesians was written by Paul in prison, I don't know if we understand the significance of that, because when you're in prison, when you're locked up, when you don't know when you might get out, the things you tend to share are very important and very near and dear to your heart. They tend to be honest and earnest, and these are the things that Paul is writing in this book. And this is the reason for us going through this, these six chapters, because they're of foremost importance to Paul, written under the inspiration of God. And I shared my stories so that you would know as a fellow prison writer, you know, <laughs> that you guys would be able to relate and understand what this means and how important this is. So we're going to dive in, starting in chapter one. So imitate God, therefore, in everything you do, because you are his dear children. Live a life filled with love, following the example of Christ. He loved us and offered himself as a sacrifice for us, a pleasing aroma to God. So we're going to start this chapter with a principle that's really, really important. A life principle that's going to serve all of us well, should we choose to believe it. And here's that principle. Whom we choose to follow is more important than where we are going. Whom we choose to follow is more important than where we are going. This is not an intuitive truth, not for us. Most of us, if we're going to follow someone, our first question is, where are you taking us? Where are we going? What's the destination? Tell me the destination, and then I'll decide whether or not I want to go with you. And that's how most of the people in our world work. But that's not how the Bible teaches us to follow. Instead, God teaches whom you're following is of foremost importance. And God begins with imitate me, right? Follow my example. That's the point. Don't fix your eyes on the destination or worry too much about the process or trying to get all the what's happening, where are we going, and all the answers you might think you need before you make the effort to go. Just follow the example God sets. And the example he sets in the scriptures, he lives a life of love, self-sacrificing for the sake of others, and let how you live please him. Practically, of course, that's, that's uh, in addition for us, the idea of imitating God means we're immersing ourselves in the scriptures. We understand the example that Jesus set because he tells us. Practically as well, that also means that there are lives God has put godly people that he has put in your life where you can get clues of what it looks like to imitate God. You know, last week, Vashi shared uh, from the 
uh, book of Ephesians chapter 4. And some of the things he shared about was about following your pastors who have a responsibility to spiritually shepherd your life. And that was challenging, and I, I agree with him, but I, I guess what I'd like to add is I know following that way can be tough to give your trust and follow the example of someone when you don't know necessarily where they're going or how this is all going to play out, when we have no assurance that things are going to work out well to follow nonetheless. And that's a challenge. But it's also the re- one of the reasons why we've chosen as a church to do leadership the way we have, why we believe in having a plurality of elders to have multiple examples to follow, why we've raised up deacons and deaconesses and what we call first responders to be examples of leadership and to, as you're seeing these lives committed to following Christ wholeheartedly, their example is being set for you to follow. Look, if what you see is ugly and sets a poor example, then don't follow. It's as simple as that. But one of the ways that we imitate God, just understand the principle that one of the ways we imitate God is to follow the good example of people that he sets in your life. And I think this is what Paul is talking about when he shares in another book he writes, 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 1, when he says, and you should imitate me just as I imitate Christ. So follow the example, imitate Jesus. Verse 3, let there be no sexual immorality, impurity or greed among you. Such sins have no place among God's people. Obscene stories, foolish talk, and coarse jokes, these are not for you. Instead, let there be thankfulness to God. You can be sure that no immoral, impure, or greedy person will inherit the kingdom of Christ and of God, for a greedy person is an idolater, worshiping the things of this world. Don't be fooled by those who try to excuse these sins. For the anger of God will fall on all who disobey him. Don't participate in the things these people do. For once you were full of darkness, but now you have light from the Lord. So live as people of light. For this light within you produces only what is good and right and true. That was a nice extended passage filled with some really good lessons. And this idea, obscene stories, Foolish talk, coarse jokes, these are not for you. That was tough for me, too, going through these passages, because I think about what this includes. That includes the YouTube videos that we like to watch. It includes those funny vines and the different memes that we find hilarious. And I always wonder, why do the funniest things always seem to be so inappropriate, right? And, and uh, even the TV shows we watch, the movies we watch. I mean, Deadpool 2 is coming out for me. I was like, oh, no, I can't go see that because that's obscene stuff, foolish and coarse. And but the Lord, what he's teaching in this passion is the things and the lesson I don't want us to miss is the things that we consistently set before our eyes and set before our ears, they have an effect on us. Consistently setting impure, foolish, and coarse things in front of us cannot help but make us a bit more impure, foolish, and coarse. So stop making excuses. Stop doing what you know doesn't please God. Stop trying to justify it. Stop trying to rationalize it or doing something that we know displeases him with intent because we know all we're doing is inviting the wrath of God. Instead, live as people of light. Be God-focused and not 
world-focused, and then you can trust that the fruit that's produced from your life is going to be good and right and true. Verse 10, carefully determine what pleases the Lord. Take no part in the worthless deeds of evil and darkness. Instead, expose them. It is shameful even to talk about the things that ungodly people do in secret. But their evil intentions will be exposed when the light shines on them, for the light makes everything visible. That's why it's said, awake, O sleeper, rise up from the dead, and Christ will give you light. That's such a powerful charge, right? Paul is sharing, under the inspiration of God, wake up and stop living like dead people. That's not who you are anymore. Dead people, they do wicked things in secret. That's just the nature of it. Wicked people are afraid of the light because the light exposes things they don't want to be exposed. But children of light walk in the light. So practically, if you are one of those people, even as a Christian, even as a believer, who has allowed your desire to be entertained, trump your desire to be holy, then confess it. At least confess it and lay it out there, expose it to the light, and then carefully determine what pleases the Lord and choose to do that instead. Verse 15, so be careful how you live. Don't live as fools, but like those who are wise. Make the most of every opportunity in these evil days. Don't act thoughtlessly, but understand what the Lord wants you to do. Don't be drunk with wine because that will ruin your life. Instead, be filled with the Holy Spirit, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs amongst yourselves and making music in your, uh, to the Lord in your hearts. And give thanks for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. I want you to meditate on these verses for a little bit because that's spiritual gold right there. A number of us, we look through the scriptures and sometimes the, we talk about how the scriptures are a bit high and a bit under, difficult to understand. This is practical. Practical lessons on how to live in the light. So that's what God is talking about. Live as children of the light. And now he says, here's a couple of practical ways for you to do that. And what he does, he shares a pair of contrasts in these passages that show us how to live in a way that pleases God. So let's unwrap the different contrasts. The first one is, don't live like fools, but like those who are wise. Don't be a fool, be wise. That is the contrast. So the question, of course, that we need to ask when we're reading that is, okay, which one am I? And how am I supposed to know which one I am? Am I the fool or am I wise? None of us wants to be the fool. And so I love what God does here, and he says, I'm not calling you a fool. I'm simply showing you what a fool looks like and letting you discern whether or not that's you. And so here in these verses, this is how God describes fools. He says that they act carelessly and thoughtlessly. In other words, fools are the people who just do stuff without considering the consequences or even worse, don't care about the consequences of what they do. Foolish people do whatever they want to do and let everyone else worry about picking up the pieces. That's how fools act. And God says here, don't live that way. Don't live like a fool. Wise people, by contrast, make the most of every opportunity. They understand what the Lord wants 
and then they do it. You know, uh, I know, I'm, I'm in my 40s, I don't know if I'm dating myself. How many of you guys have ever read the magazine Highlights? Do you still, does that still come out? Oh, good, yay. So, I'm sorry? What's that? Whatever. So it's this magazine for kids that you open, and I, I read it even when I wasn't a kid because it was really cool. But there's a segment in the book, the magazine highlights called Goofus and Gallant. Do you remember Goofus and Gallant? This is, these are God's Goofus and Gallant passages. He's basically saying, hey, this is one, this is the other. Which one are you going to choose to be? And wise people make the most of, opportunity, or most of every opportunity. So what does this mean? So this past week I had a conversation with an old friend of mine, and during that conversation, I was, I mean, I don't want to go through the whole comment. Basically, what I was telling him was that, man, it is tough, because one of the challenges of getting older is that I realize I don't have as many opportunities to squander as I used to. And my mentality was, you know, when I was younger, if I missed an opportunity, there was always the idea, well, it'll come back around again. And I don't know if that's true, and it might have been foolishness to think that because life doesn't always give us do-overs. When I look back on my life, my missed opportunities are usually my biggest regrets. The chance to play football in high school, a chance to visit uh, and tour China when my parents offered the opportunity and I said no because I was afraid to go on my own. The many chances to be able to love and serve my wife when our kids were really young and a bit crazy. There's a few more, but right now, um, You know, our home group is going through a series, uh, the Mosaic Crew, going through a a Bible study called Experiencing God. I don't know if many of you have heard of it or gone through that before. It's by Henry Blackaby, and it's actually my third time through it, my wife's fourth time through it. And what I love about the whole Experiencing God Bible study is the goal of it is to teach you how to listen to God. And it's so important. And this is what this passage is teaching us, right? Can you understand what the Lord wants you to do? Because if you can get through that stage of understanding what God wants you to do, then what happens after that is very simple. If you understand what it is the Lord wants you to do, how he is speaking into your life, then the only choice you have to deal with after that is, am I going to obey or not? And too many of us don't take the time, don't make the effort to understand what it is the Lord wants to do. And what God says is wise people take the time to understand what the Lord's will is. And then the choice afterwards is very simple, obey or not. The second contrast that is found in this passage is this idea of don't be drunk with wine, but be filled with God's spirit. And so we're clear on this one. This is not a verse about alcoholism. It's a verse about filling your life with the right stuff. Don't be drunk with wine. We'll start with this idea, and another way we often talk about this is if you're drunk with wine, you're under the influence. Does that make sense for us? When you're under the influence, and what God is saying here is don't be under the influence of anything that the world has to offer. And the only way to do that, the secret of not being under the influence of anything the world has to offer is to be filled first with God's spirit. So, Chad, what are you filling your life with? This weekend, our uh, family was part of this ministry uh, to see Mark Ranch that uh, got a chance to go serve out there that our our deacon, J.B. Bopp, spearheaded and put together. And guys, JB did an amazing job coordinating and organizing that time. That was really fantastic. My wife and my kids have not stopped talking about how amazing that 
time was. And so for our family, we got to enjoy it a little bit more because we got to show up the night before on Friday night, and we spent the night there. And one of the things we chose to do that Friday night there was we went no tech. So everybody put their phones and technology and everything aside, and we ended up spending the night being able to play board games. Uh, we spent the night talking. It was so neat to have my entire family, right, Josiah included, who's back from college, to be able to just sit around and talk about, guys, here's what we see in the next five years, in the next, next 10 years, and where we, we believe God wants our family, and he's going to have final say, but this is what we want. Are you guys on board with this? And talking about what it looks like for them to be able to go to college, to graduate from college, what they're going to do in that time. And it was great conversation to have. We played a vicious game of spoons that brought out my wife's dark side. That's what she needed in order to win. So, uh, and when I say vicious, I mean bent spoons and scars all over our hands. So that is like, that was awesome. And so I share that because I want to share with you a little secret about parenting kids who you want to live spirit-filled lives. And I think this applies to us as well. But again, this weekend was very fresh in our minds, this idea of what it looks like to parent kids that you want to live spirit-filled lives. Because the reality is, and what we found is, you have to do more than simply exposing them to God's word and giving them opportunities to serve and bless others. Theoretically, that should be enough, right? If we expose them to God's word and let God disciple them and lead them and all that stuff, then they're just going to take off on their own. And what we found as parents is, you know, that doesn't always work quite the way we hope. I think it's, that's important, that's vital, but that's not enough. And so what you also want to do, here's one of our little secrets that we'll pass along to you. One of the things you also want to do is you want to help them associate being filled with God's spirit with some of the best memories they'll ever have. Paul gets this. And that's why he writes this passage the way he does. Is that up there? Yeah. When he says, look, don't get drunk. Instead, be filled with the spirit, singing songs. So he's talking about be filled with the spirit. But what does he say right after that? He says, be filled with the Spirit. How? Sing. Sing spiritual songs. Make music in your heart to the Lord. Give thanks for everything. Do you see what Paul's doing? He's saying as well that if you want to be filled with the Spirit, you've got to associate with some of the best stuff and best memories you've got. That's the way to make that meaningful. And I think it's tough. It's, it's, it's frustrating to see how some of us have trained ourselves and maybe even trained our families to associate joy and fun with things of this world. And then we associate boredom and obligation with the things of God. And I think when we do that, we're inevitably setting ourselves up to fail. Learn to enter into God's presence with joy and celebration. Not only for yourself, but for those around you. Help them associate God with the experiences that you love most. Laugh and enjoy him. If you need some help, drink some wine. I'm just kidding. Laugh, you know, enjoy. This is what it looks like to build a life that is filled with God's spirit. Verse 21, and further, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. For wives, this means submit to your husbands as to the Lord. For a husband is the head of his wife, as Christ is the head of the church. He is the savior of his body, the church. As the church submits to Christ, so you wives should submit to your husbands in everything. Man, those are some messy, fun passages to play with. 
So before we jump into breaking this down and understanding what this means, uh, I want to share that in three days, this upcoming Wednesday, our church is hosting what we're calling a marriage tune-up. And so I want to take a moment to explain what that means. A marriage tune-up is not a marriage makeover. In other words, if your marriage or your relationship is a train wreck, then you're going to need more help than you're probably going to get out of our Wednesday night. And so we can maybe help direct you to get some professional help, but that tune-up is not a makeover. It's not to help fix something that's completely broken. On the other hand, if your marriage, your relationship is, is perfect, or no one's perfect, so in really, really great shape, then you might not need to have what we share on Wednesday night. So if you are in that place where your marriage or your relationship is just absolutely fantastic and you have something better to do on that Wednesday night, then go ahead. You're free to go ahead and do that. But if you're in a place where my marriage and my relationship is having its shares of ups and downs, and you know, every once in a while, we get into this funky rut that just feels familiar but we just can't always seem to get ourselves out of. We just don't know what to do with it, then this time is for you. And you know what else? Even if you have a friend, a neighbor, a coworker that you've been talking to in conversation with and their marriage might be in the same place, invite them to come and be a part as well because the things we're going to share is gonna be really relevant for them too. Wednesday night, 7 to 9 p.m., we'll provide childcare. Actually, the Awakening crew has been gracious enough to offer childcare here at Awaken. All right, so that little promo bit being said, I wanna talk about these verses, wrapping up chapter five. And I'm gonna say this first. If we understand these verses rightly at the end of chapter five, they will revolutionize how you think about marriage and how we think about marriage. Because God's sharing some incredible truths here, and he's sharing them in a very simplified way. In other words, what God is sharing in these passage is he's trying to help husbands and wives in particular realize that each of you have one specific power that you can activate that will make your marriage godly and make your marriage work. That each husband and wife has a special power they can exercise to make their marriage godly, to make their marriage work. And for wives, that power is submission. Now, I know some of you are thinking, um, that sounds like a sucky power, right? That's like the superpower of being able to change color. It's like, what is that supposed to do? No, no, no. That's not how this works. Submission, let's start with an understanding of what submission means. Submission is a voluntary yielding of one to another. That's at its core what submission means, a voluntary yielding. In other words, you choose to yield to another. That's the essence of submission. Now, the world has done something funny here. The world has turned this into an offensive idea because the world does something to this word, submission, that God does not. And what the world does to this idea of submission is it associates submission with your being worth less you're having less value. The world assumes that the one who submits is by definition someone who is less powerful and less worthwhile. So I wanna be clear, that is something the world does, not God. Biblically, historically, there are a number of different examples, many examples of how the more powerful, the more talented, the more gifted choose to submit in order to accomplish something great. Sir Lancelot 
was the greatest and most powerful knight who lived in the realm. He submitted to Arthur. LeBron James is the greatest basketball player on the planet. And who does he submit to? Tyron Lue, who is the coach who, when he was a player, was a backup point guard who bounced from team to team because no team wanted him enough to keep him. Robert Downey Jr., he submitted to an untested director, John Favreau, and in so doing, launched a Marvel empire. Across the world, there are more talented musicians, more talented and gifted engineers, more talented and gifted teachers, and so on and so forth, who are choosing to voluntarily submit to less talented, less gifted, and even less capable supervisors because there's a job that needs to get done. There is a greater good that needs to be accomplished. And then, of course, the greatest example of all, Jesus submitted himself to Pontius Pilate. God in flesh chose to submit to a weak governor and to a mob and allowed them to sentence him to death. Again, we can go through tons of examples. What I want you to grasp is there are many, many examples of more gifted, more talented, more powerful choosing to submit for a greater purpose. That has nothing to do with their worth. As a matter of fact, sometimes in doing it, it augments their worth. So wives, clearly, from a biblical perspective, the command to submit has nothing to do with your worth and has nothing to do with your value. It has to do with trust. It has to do with respect. It has to do with setting the example in your family of what biblical humility and honor is supposed to look like. That's the example you are setting when you choose to submit in a godly way. You know what's a nice little tip I'll give for you wives? Your husbands are wired to respond positively when they are respected and when they are admired. I don't know why this is true. I don't know why God chose to make men this way, but it is, right? Men will give their best to those who admire them most. That is simply how men are wired. And so wives who do this earnestly, who do this well, will inevitably and without fail win their husband's hearts and devotion. And that is the power of godly submission. Verse 25, for husbands... This means love your wives just as Christ loved the church. He gave up his life for her to make her clean, I'm sorry, holy and clean, washed by the cleansing of God's word. He did this to present her to himself as a glorious church without spot or wrinkle or any other blemish. Instead, she'll be holy and without fault. In the same way, husbands ought to love their wives as they love their own bodies. For a man who loves his wife actually shows love for himself. No one hates his own body, but feeds and cares for it just as Christ cares for the church. And we are members of his body. As the scriptures say, a man leaves his father and mother and is joined to his wife, and the two are united into one. This is a great mystery but it is an illustration of the way Christ and the church are one. So again, I say, each man must love his wife as he loves himself, and the wife must respect her husband. As a nice long passage takes us through the end of this chapter of Ephesians. And I want to start right here with this idea, the first sentence. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loves the church. That is your power. 
straightforward, right? It seems like, oh, that's nothing. I can do that. It's actually not. It's not straightforward. And the reason why it's not straightforward and easy and simple is because your wives are complicated and they are a mystery. I want all of you husbands to do me a favor. I want you to repeat this first sentence to me, right? Husbands, love your wives as Christ has loved the church. I want you to say it now. For husbands, love your wives as Christ has loved the church. Again, you can do better than that. For husbands, love your wives as Christ has loved the church. Too many well-meaning and well-intended husbands fail at this because they're focused too much on the first part of that statement. And the first part of that statement is love your wife. But that is not what this passage is saying. The Bible says love your wife as Christ has loved the church. And there is a difference between the two. The biggest difference is this idea that if my sole goal, if my, I think that my superpower, my thing that makes this marriage work is I simply have to love my wife, then what we naturally and intuitively do is we love our wives the way we think we should be loved. And so for me, I'm going to give a practical example. I grew up in a Chinese family where we just kind of kept quiet about times when things are rough and when we suffer. We don't share a lot about our lives. That's just kind of, we're just very subtle. And so that's how I grew up. And so whenever I was sick, whenever I was in pain, I very much have an attitude of just leave me alone to suffer in peace. Not in a bad way. It's just like, I don't want to be around people because then I feel obligated for something. Just let me suffer in peace. So I like to be left alone when I am sick. And so in the early days of our marriage, those times when my wife was not feeling well, what did I do? I left her alone. I left her to suffer in peace because that's what I would have wanted. And my wife thought I was neglecting her. She thought, really? When things are getting tough, you just abandoned me? And she thought that she felt very unloved. Do you see that? My definition of what it meant to be loved, she was actually receiving as being the exact opposite, that she was feeling unloved. Loving her the way I wanted to be loved led to neglect. And maybe this doesn't make sense for some of you and, and men because, again, remember, complicated and mysterious is how it was. So this is what God has done, right? He has quantified that and clarified what this means. He says, love your wife the way Jesus loves his bride, the church. And the way Jesus loves his church is sacrificially. In other words, his definition of love is if, there, if I will love first, I will sacrifice first, I will apologize first. This is what it means to lead my wife in love. Jesus loved humbly. Jesus loved without limits and without condition in ways that the church needed to be loved. And that's the same for us. We are to love our wives without limit, without condition, in the way they need to receive love, not the way we think we want is most convenient to give it. So men, here's a tip for you. Women, women want to be wooed, they want to be discovered, and they want to be known. There is this aspect of the pursuit that is really important to women, and so you can't ever stop chasing. Don't ever start, don't, tar, don't take her for granted. As men, we tend to think of loving our wives and the way we love our wives is a series of activities or a series of events, but that's not how our wives work. For women, love is this ongoing, devoted journey through occasionally dangerous territory to reach a destination that's inescapably good. 
That's their idea of love. It's a journey that's ongoing, moment by moment, and not just a series of events or things you might do at any given time. So brothers, take that journey. The Bible offers a map. Your wife, she's going to give you a lot of clues along the way. Pay attention. And don't you dare give up. And as you follow that, right, as you love your wives as Christ has loved the church, watch how your marriage is going to blossom. There's so much more to share, uh, but we're just out of time today. And gosh, if only we had like two hours to kind of go through things that might help make a marriage. Oh, wait, Wednesday night, right? 7 to 9 p.m. come and there's a lot of cool practical things that my wife and I are going to share that just practically made a huge difference for us. And feel free again to invite anyone else you might know who could use a bit of help in their marriage or relationship. Next week, Stephen Freeman is going to close out our series on the book of Ephesians. We're excited. That's a can't miss Sunday morning. And then two weeks from now, we're going to launch our summer teachings, three series over the course of the summer, all centered around the life of Jesus. It's going to be amazing. So let me wrap up in a word of prayer, and then we got some special stuff for you guys. Lord, thank you so much for this time, for this morning, for the privilege and joy of being able to go through your word and see the different ways that you unwrap, God, your, your truths to a people who are, your perfect truths to a people who are fallible, breakable, foolish, and, and easily distracted, Lord. And uh, we just thank you for your great love for us, your great love towards us, and your constant charge and exhortation that we would be your children living in the light. That we would not allow our lives to be consumed with different secret sins that we might want to hold on to, but we walk as you called us in truth and light and to be able to see the fruit that you want us to bear being born. God, I thank you that your concern for us is not simply as individuals, but even as couples and as families, Lord. And you teach us in your word very practical ways of how we can see not only our lives, but our marriages and our families blossom. And we're just so excited. Thank you that following you is always best and always pays off and always ends up being a blessing to our lives. And we Thank you so much. Thank you for this Mother's Day and the opportunity to celebrate our mamas, our loved ones, and uh, we pray that your Holy Spirit would continue to lead and bless us this coming week. We thank you, we praise you, we worship you, Lord of Lord, King of Kings, in Jesus' name, amen.